Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Failed gubernatorial candidate Lauren Culp trying again. This time, he has his eyes on Congress. A local proud boy is sent back to jail over his involvement in the storming of the U.S. Capitol. Police reform at the forefront after Derek Chauvin found guilty in the murder of George Floyd. And an online summit of world leaders dealing with climate change. Plus, could Washington, D.C. finally become a state? All of those stories and much more coming up. But first, Lauren Culp at it again, this time challenging a member of his own party. Joining me now is KVI talk show host John Carlson. And I, I guess the first question I would put to you is, is this issue of residency going to be a problem for Lauren Culp and his campaign? Legally, it will not, uh, Jeff, because even though, ironically, you have to be a resident of the district you're running in to be a state legislator, you don't have to be a resident of the district you run in to be a member of Congress. Now, it's an awfully good idea if you do, because, again, legally, you don't have to. Politically, it's almost a death wish not to. Uh, it's it's hard to make the case that you want to represent constituents in Congress if you don't want to live with them. And so it would be a huge political issue if Lauren Culp were to run for Congress in the 4th District, Tri-Cities Yakima, while living way up in the northeast corner of Washington in the town of Republic in that area. Uh, And let's remember, we had an issue like this in Seattle not so long ago uh, when Jim McDermott, who represented the 7th District, which is basically the city of Seattle in Congress for about 124 years. I mean, (laughs) Jim was there a long, long time. Now, let's see, he actually was elected in 88. And when he got ready to retire, State Senator Pramila Jayapal Uh, wanted to run for Congress to replace him. Well, one little problem is that uh, State Senator Jayapal's district was inside not the 7th Congressional, but the next door 9th Congressional district. And so Pramila had to move into the 7th district in order to run for Congress. So in, in, in that sense, there in this state, at least there, there is precedent for that. And in, in, so he would be, if nothing else, hypocritical if he didn't. Yeah, he would be creating a problem for himself that is completely unnecessary. You know, if, if you want to run for Congress, for heaven's sakes, move to where you want to run. Now, this goes back to, I, I, well, hundreds of years ago. I mean, in, in the early days of the Republic, because the Constitution says nothing about congressional districts. It just says the representation will be apportioned among the several states, and then it's up to the states to decide. States at times have, have elected their representatives at large. Oh, yes, they, they have. In fact, some states, in terms of population so small, they only have one member of Congress in their state, like Wyoming. Uh, and so their member of Congress is a statewide office. Remember Dick Cheney, before he became George W. Bush's vice president, was the congressman <laughs> from Wyoming because there was only one. <laughs> he was he was the congressional delegation. So assuming Lauren Culp can get past the issue of residency, moves into the fourth district, 
what kind of a race do you see this as? I grew up in the 4th District. I, I remember back when it was represented by Jay Inslee for two years before the Rubber yeah. Coupling Revolution in 94 and Doc Hastings and, and all of that. It's a very conservative district, but Dan Newhouse is kind of a sacred cow there. Well, you asked a really good question, and you added some very important background, Jeff, uh, and that is the name Newhouse. Now, Lauren Culp is a political newcomer, and he is running probably with the hope that Donald Trump will endorse him, and he will be running as the Trump-endorsed candidate for Congress in the 4th District, which, as you point out, is probably the second most conservative district, might even be the most conservative district in Washington I'd argue it's more conservative than than the 5th, certainly than Kathy McMorris. Yeah. Um, And and let's remember Clint Didier uh, almost won that district when Doc Hastings, you know, the prototypical Reagan Republican, represented it for over 20 years he retires well well and keep in mind too i i was actually living and working in the district in that 2014 race when clint didier ran Mm -hmm. his problem though is he ran a horrendous campaign he had no idea what he was doing i remember covering his announcement uh, that his he was kicking off his campaign it was all of like five days since doc hastings announced his retirement and I asked him straight up, what are you going to make this campaign about? What are your issues? He didn't have an answer for that. So right. it's it, it was an interesting challenge. But at the same time, Culp is kind of in that same mold. Uh, no, that's true. Uh, that's why I, I brought up Clint Didier's name. Uh, Lauren is someone who has never really been uh, a part of politics. Now, you can you could still be a maverick, but... You can also, you know, be a part of politics, you know, like Jim Walsh is down in in the Aberdeen area, like Phil Fortunato is uh, on the western side of the mountains. But Lauren Culp, when he ran for governor, I don't even think he sought any endorsements from any. Nor did he completely fill out the voters pamphlet information. Yeah. No, again, that that is a sign like Clint Didier's first campaign. Uh, Lauren Culp's campaign had some horrendous unforced errors in the early going. He he not only didn't fill out his voters pamphlet statement after being you know reminded time after time by the Secretary of State's office, but then tried to blame the Secretary of State, and that created an unnecessary problem for him because there was this paper trail showing that the fault was all. Uh, his campaign management's responsibility. So he he let's put it this way: he learned a lot of lessons in that statewide race for governor. Now in this race for Congress, Jeff Culp will want to make it a mandate on Donald Trump because Dan Newhouse voted for impeachment. Dan Newhouse is probably going to make it a mandate on who's closer to you, who's working for you, who knows you. Who cares about you? Who delivers for the people of the district? That name Newhouse goes back a long ways before Dan Newhouse. Remember, his father was a legendary lawmaker, uh, Irv Newhouse. Uh, In fact, they named the state Senate, uh, one of the state Senate office buildings after uh, Irv Newhouse. 
And Dan was the Secretary of Agriculture in a Democratic administration. He was also a member of the state legislature. He's got the experience. And he was an experienced legislator before he ran for Congress. And so the one thing that benefits uh, Dan is that that vote for impeachment will have accumulated some time. You know, the when when time marches on, people's recollections, people's anger abates a little bit. So that will help him. Uh, but Lauren Culp, I think, will be running all on that single issue. So it's going to be a really interesting race. Can he win running on that single issue that Newhouse voted to impeach? It depends on turnout. Um, my, my guess is that... The early money favors Dan Newhouse for the exact reason that you mentioned, and that is that other than running for for governor, Lauren doesn't have a whole lot else going for him. Now, he's got a huge Facebook following and he's got a lot of grassroots support uh, and he'll have a clear message. You know, I, I stood with Donald Trump when Dan Newhouse wanted to kick him out two weeks before he left office or whatever, you know, it's going to be a classic, you know, do you vote the person who knows the district or do you vote for someone who symbolizes your anger? Here's the other thing. The Democrats have pretty much written off the fourth congressional, but if a Democrat could win in the fourth, uh, they would have an easier time against a Lauren Culp than a Dan Newhouse. So, they might try and find, you know, some moderate Democrat rancher, business owner. Uh, you know, if, if they try and run Western Washington profile, that'll go down in flames. But that primary is going to be watched not only throughout Washington, Jeff, it's going to be watched throughout the country, that Republican primary between Lauren Culp and Dan Newhouse. And there's a chance, of course, There'll be a rematch in November because Washington has a top two system. And so it's not the top Democrat and the top Republican who go to the November ballot. It's the top two finishers, period. So you could see Lauren Culp jousting with Dan Newhouse in the primary, and then they'll face off again in November. The other wild card to throw in is that uh, conservative representative, state representative Brad Clippert has also announced he will challenge Dan Newhouse this again because of Newhouse's vote to impeach Donald Trump. So it, it, it seems the race seems to be shaping up to be sort of standard Republican versus Trump Republican. And a local versus national approach, too, uh, because that's what Dan focuses on is serving the district. And Lauren is, you know, someone who is running as, you know, a national symbol of of Trumpism uh, in the state, which, again, is much more popular in the fourth district than in any Western Washington district by far. Um, You're right. The one early casualty of Lauren Culp's announcement is Brad Clippert, who on paper, you know, law enforcement background, military background, he's an experienced legislator himself, on paper looks to be a pretty viable contender, but not against the huge social media campaign that Lauren Culp is, is going to be able to run. Well, it should be an interesting race to see in the next 
year and a half. Thank you so much, John Carlson. We'll have you back on again soon. Anytime, Jeff. Thanks a lot. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, a local Proud Boy is deemed a threat to the public and ordered back to jail when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Auburn Proud Boy Ethan Nordine is headed back to jail. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. has revoked his bail after prosecutors brought new evidence showing that he may not have just participated in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol that left five people dead, but he may have been an organizer of it. Joining me now is Josh Gerstein. He's a legal affairs reporter for Politico. And what did we learn in court? Well, it sounds like the judge who was handling this uh, became convinced that there is, in fact, stronger evidence that Ethan Nordeen and one of his associates, a Florida-based uh, Proud Boy member by the name of Joseph Figg, um, had an organizing role um, in the violence that took place uh, on uh, the 6th of January, the takeover of the Capitol building. Uh, so the government has now come forward with uh, what I think are, are signal chats or other encrypted chats uh, among a, a group, a batch of Proud Boys, uh, with a lot of comments that, you know, maybe don't explicitly say that they were planning to break the law, but there are even comments saying to each other, you know, don't mention here that you plan to commit any felony. So at some point, the judge became convinced that, that this was really a very thinly veiled cover for what was supposed to be uh, a violent overtaking of the Capitol. So what do we know about his participation so far? What can prosecutors prove or what have we seen on video that Nordine and his associates did? Well, I mean, we've seen them, um, you know, organizing outside the building. We've seen them um, marching over to the building. We know that uh, one member of the Proud Boys, uh, a fellow named Dominic Pizzola out of New York, appears to have um, you might say, led off the violence at the Capitol by smashing uh, a window of the Capitol with a riot shield. And then you had a bunch of uh, uh, other individuals, crowd boys, and just you know members of the general crowd uh, climbed through that window, which really was one of the first phases of this takeover of the Capitol. And there's a lot of clashing uh, with police at various lines, um, barricades being uh, overthrown and things along those lines. Um, that said, the judge who was handling this acknowledged that, you know, in these chats, there isn't that much evidence of saying, look, you go and do this specific thing. You know, there was a fair amount of pre-planning that went on uh, of bringing riot gear, uh, some discussion uh, of weaponry and, and things along those lines. But it sounded like there was a pretty serious confrontation um, expected. You know, one of the defenses here has been, well, uh, the Proud Boys say, well, they were just Uh, protecting themselves against what they thought would be an attack uh, by uh, left-wing, you know, activists or violent uh, anarchists or Antifa members. Um, But the judge has said he doesn't really find that uh, totally persuasive. And it does seem like uh, there was definitely a focus here that there was going to be some kind of an assault on the Capitol building. Now, you, you write in your piece, too, that Nordine wasn't originally one of the, the organizers of this. He kind of stepped into that role after the Proud Boy leader was arrested a few days before this whole attack. Right. So there's another fellow named Enrique Tario who uh, was considered a, a key leader of the Proud Boys. Um, he's actually out of jail, perhaps for his own good. He wasn't around. He was in jail uh, or had been arrested right before the Capitol uh, attack. And so... Um, Nordine seems to have been a deputy that kind of stepped in to organize uh, the Proud Boys 
within a day or two uh, uh, before the um, assault on the Capitol. Uh, there was also a change in their communications uh, after Terrio was arrested. They set up a new uh, channel for uh, encrypted communication because of a concern that when Terrio was arrested, uh, the police would have gotten his cell phone and probably would have been able to go through the message history and figure out a lot of the planning that had taken place. So where has Nordine been in the last few weeks and months? Because he posted bail from the initial charges that were presented. Yeah, my understanding that, that he has been uh, out free, um, like most of the Capitol riot defendants, under some form of uh, home detention. But as a result of this ruling that has just taken place, he's been told that he has to uh, return uh, to jail and he's going to be told to report to the marshal service at some point and put back into custody along with this uh, Joseph Figs, who's kind of interesting. He was, uh, it looks to me from looking at the records, prosecutors didn't actually ask for him uh, to be detained pre-trial when he was first arrested back in January. So they don't believe these guys were a flight risk? Obviously, they, they granted bail. The judge granted bail in the initial case. Well, the, I mean, the judge did believe they were, they were. I don't know about the flight risk as much as the, there's also an issue of what the danger is to the community. And that's a lot of what Judge Kelly, uh, Timothy Kelly, is actually a Trump appointee, was talking about. There's a degree of pre-planning here, uh, all kinds of revolutionary references, uh, talks, of 1776 and so forth that really made it sound like these were people that were willing to start a war over what they thought was a fraudulent uh, election and that he really saw no reason to think that that danger had gone away. Now, you could say this kind of rhetoric that people use on Facebook and other channels is really not that uncommon, and you could probably find thousands of Americans that posted um, you know, revolutionary metaphors, uh, even members of Congress talked about 1776 around the time of this, uh, just prior to the January 6th violence. So, so that's not that unusual, but you couple that with the pre-planning, with organizing a group of uh, men and women to descend on the Capitol while wearing riot gear uh, and wearing, um, you know, all kinds of uh, defenses. Uh, that makes it sound like these are people who are more inclined to take action on some of those beliefs than someone who's just sort of a, a keyboard cowboy and is sitting there posting things uh, that they may have no intention of pursuing. Do we know where Nordine is now? Have the, the feds been monitoring his location? I think he's been at a home, his home or a relative uh, home uh, for the last couple of months since the judge uh, ordered him uh, released. Most of the defendants facing serious charges in the Capitol riot have been under some form of home detention. Sometimes they're allowed to leave uh, for work uh, or religious services, that kind of thing. But almost all of them have been under some form of uh, GPS monitoring if they've been allowed out of jail. So what's the next step in this case? Well, uh, the next step, as with many of these cases, is that the prosecution is trying to deal with a rather overwhelming amount of evidence that they have. Uh, you think that would be good for the prosecution because they have so many videos and so forth. So, and in a sense, it is. But in terms of the practicalities of moving forward with a trial or guilty pleas and so forth, um, we're talking about probably hundreds of thousands of hours of video, surveillance video, uh, body-worn cameras, uh, social media media video, video taken from the cell phones of people that were arrested uh, after their participation in this riot. And in many cases, all of that video will have to be given 
to each individual defendant and or his attorney. And that is really a Herculean effort that I think is, has set back a lot of these prosecutions by several months. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington handling this uh, is still trying to come up with a platform that will allow them to share that information with everybody who's charged in a riot. Until that happens, I don't think we're going to see a lot of meaningful progress. So the, pro- the prosecutors don't even know what charges they may bring as a result of this new evidence yet? Um, it could be. I mean, some of these people are facing very serious charges already, uh, like Nordine. Uh, there may also be more cooperators. We've already had uh, the first uh, suspect agree to plead guilty and cooperate with uh, prosecutors, uh, but it's not totally clear. That was in another case involving uh, the Oath Keepers, but it's not totally clear uh, you know, how, how many people choose to do that. And I think until the, they sort of disclose all the evidence to the lawyers for these uh, defendants, it's going to be a slow process here, at least in the most serious cases. I don't think folks should expect to see a trial or a raft of guilty pleas anytime soon. All right, Josh Gerstein, he's legal affairs reporter for Politico. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Happy to do it. Still to come, police reform is at the top of President Biden's agenda. But what are the chances anything will get through Congress? When the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogula. President Biden, Vice President Harris each made a point of saying that there's still work to be done while delivering remarks on the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial on Tuesday. But one of the quotes I've seen from a lot of people out there is that the verdict was accountability, not justice. Justice comes in the form of of reform. Joining me now is ABC's Elizabeth Schulze from Washington, D.C., and uh, the big push right now is police reform in Congress, but it seems to have stalled a little bit. What's going on? Yeah, Jeff, that's exactly right. The president really echoed this message of Congress needs to get moving on this. This shouldn't take a whole year to pass police reform, but as of right now, the comprehensive reform is stalled in Congress. We saw the House pass last month the George Floyd and Justice and Policing Act. They had passed an earlier version of this bill last year, but it hasn't been taken up by the Senate yet. This is a pretty comprehensive effort to try to address accountability with police, to try to eliminate what they what the House calls you know racial bias in police forces. It does things like ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants in drug cases at the federal level. It requires offices to employ de-escalation techniques first before doing anything else. And essentially, there was big, broad support in the House, which of course is controlled by Democrats, but no indication yet that this would get enough votes to pass in the Senate. So what's the hurdle? Is there Republican opposition to this bill? There is. And there's one major sticking point. There are a couple of sticking points. But one of the main ones is this idea of qualified immunity. This is in the House bill in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It would eliminate qualified immunity for police officers that essentially shields law enforcement officials from getting being subject to civil lawsuits. And the House bill says, we should have police be more accountable. They shouldn't have this shield. And Republicans are very much opposed to getting rid of that shield. So that seems like there's a lot of room that they need to meet in the middle. They have yet to do that. There's also generally the consensus we've heard from Senator uh, Tim Scott and the uh, Republican senator who says he understands the need to limit chokeholds, but he doesn't want to ban them altogether. So really, the question is if there's enough middle ground that they can find some sort of bill that maybe would be an iteration of the House bill. Right now, it just seems to be a lot of talk, not a lot of action quite yet. What are the constitutional issues involved? And and by that, I I don't mean the constitutional issues of police dealing with minority suspects, but rather 
states versus federal government because states really dictate how their own police departments work. And then even further, it's down to the county and city level. Yeah, that's right. And that is also something that Republicans point to. They say states should be the ones passing these reforms. And in fact, we have seen some states go ahead with their own reforms Uh, You know, Maryland recently passed a a major police reform bill just last week. So so that's one of the kind of questions. But the the argument we're hearing from Democrats and certainly this was echoed by President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris was that the federal level needs to take this seriously, too. There needs to be a federal standard of policing. That's what this George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do. And they say that the the central you know government should really set this standard and then it would be up to the states and local governments to actually enforce them. What's the next step in this process? Uh, you said it stalled out in the Senate. Is Majority <laughs> Leader Chuck Schumer going to even uh, bring it to a vote? Yeah, so notably, he Chuck Schumer spoke on the floor of the Senate today. He said that the Senate's not going to rest until police reform is passed, but he didn't give us a clear indication of what the next steps are, if this is going to be uh, taken into committees in the Senate, if they're going to put forward new legislation, Legislation. It sounds like there is a lot of negotiating that's happening behind the scenes in the Senate between a couple of uh, a couple of just a handful of um, Republican one Republican, really, uh, Tim Scott and Democrats. And before they have any votes to do that, it sounds like Schumer is trying to kind of play it a little bit, uh, you know, cautiously right now. But the the point is that he's also saying that this is a single verdict and it's not enough. He echoed the same message we heard from the administration saying more needs to be done. So really, how much can be done without, you know, to get to the 60 votes that you need in the Senate, it's something we talk about a lot. It's just such a big threshold to get people from both sides to that number to pass legislation. It's, it makes anything comprehensive like this pretty difficult. And the Democrats have their own issues with the conservative members of their caucus in Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Where are they on this? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we haven't had heard any specific comments on this from them today, notably. I mean, we, we wait <laughs> to hear from those kind of swing votes in the Democratic Party who can also decide, you know, if, if they get the votes on their side. But this bill... Uh, You know, unlike some of the previous, like the budget bill that we've seen passed or the infrastructure bill where they could maybe do that with a simple majority in the Senate, in which case Manchin and Cinema are so important in their votes. A, a bill like comprehensive police reform likely wouldn't be able to pass in that way. It would need to get to that 60 vote threshold. Uh, the other thing that's really important that's happening here in Washington is that there's an effort to kind of bypass what's going on in Congress and take steps from the administration, from agencies like the Justice Department. And we saw that happening today with Attorney General Merrick Garland announcing an investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department, essentially to determine if this department has a history of using excessive force of racial discrimination. So the Biden administration understands that this is a priority. They understand that the public is, you know, pushing for reform in a, in a lot of ways on this. And they're trying to kind of acknowledge and push the reality of Congress, but know that it's solid and try to take their own action in the meantime. All right, ABC's Elizabeth Schulze, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Next, renewing the global effort against climate change with an online summit of world leaders when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podes. Laboris Johnson added again. This is not all about uh, some expensive, uh, politically correct uh, green act of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of bunny hugging. The British Prime Minister, like no one else, joining me now is ABC's Tom Rivers from London. And uh, the mystery, let's solve that. What's he talking about here? Yeah, he's talking about grabbing the headlines. He used to be on a 
a journalist with the Daily Telegraph. So he, he, he knows about sound bites, and he's basically saying, look, the issue about climate change and the implications for coming generations is real. He says, I believe it. It's real. Um, but he says, no, you don't have to be a bunny hugger. You don't have to be an eco-warrior. You don't have to, you know, hug trees to believe that. And he says he's, he's not a bunny hugger, but he believes that, yes, something pretty pretty dramatic has to be done. And, of course, all the countries meeting virtually, kind of, you know, just kind of having a pause, if you will, saying, okay, let's try to uh, set our sights on November. That's going to be the follow-on to the Paris Climate Summit. And, of course, looking back about five years ago, they said, look, we're going to have to touch base, like, at least every five years for major conferences to reestablish where we're going to try to tighten things up more if we can to uh, to reduce carbon emissions globally. And a lot of the criticism we've seen globally is how can countries like the UK or the United States lead when you have countries like China and India that really aren't compliant yep. as they try to build their uh, economies. Uh, was any progress made there? Not really. I mean, you have to go back to Paris. Now, Paris was kind of a, often criticized uh, by saying, well, you know, was, every country was going to do what it could do. That's the starting point, and then we can build upon it, as I've alluded to, over the next five years and 10 years and 15 years. Um, China, for instance, still plans on building coal-fired plants until 2030 and then starting to reduce them. So they're kind of on a different orbit from, uh, from the U.S. and, say, the U.K., and that's, that's really sharp criticism, um, saying, look, everybody should be, you know, trying to marry up and trying to do things more closely integrated. And, of course, some countries, war zone, what are they going to do? You know, they're going to do absolutely nothing. They can't do anything right now. Uh, but some of the developing, you know, developed countries, such as China now, yes, they could probably do more and quickly. I'd love to see if that's the case. All right, ABC's Tom Rivers from London. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Next on the Como Politicast, 51 stars on the American flag. We'll get you that story in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, it's an idea that's been around, well, just about as long as America has been a country. Should D.C. become a state? Well, it's a federal district at the moment, but there's a move afoot to change that once again. But will it go anywhere? Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from where else but Washington, D.C., so what's the latest here? Well, the latest is for the second time in U.S. history, the House has passed a law that would make District of Columbia the 51st state. Uh, and that would be great for people who live in the District of Columbia because they would finally have a say in all that federal money that they give to Uncle Sam, but at the moment have no say in how it's spent. Uh, most people may not realize it, but if folks who live in Washington, D.C. are still American citizens. Yet they have absolutely no vote in the House or Senate when it comes to spending or passing laws or anything else. They do have a delegate. Uh, her name is Eleanor Holmes Norton, and she has had that job for as long as I've been in Washington, and that's been more than 40 years. So, uh, but, you know, she can yell and jump and scream and do all kinds of things, but it doesn't really matter because she doesn't have a vote and there is no senator. So the House, which is controlled by the Democrats, passed the bill, sending it over to the Senate where it will die a very quick death because Republicans don't want D.C. to be a state. Now, they will make up all kinds of excuses to say why they'll go, well, it's, it was never meant to be a state and 
we shouldn't give such a tiny little place as much power as our other states in the country. But the fact is, is that D.C.'s population is as big as some of the least populated states out west that all have representatives and two senators. Uh, D.C. has none. The Republicans really don't want two more Democratic senators in the Senate, which would, of course, guarantee that they would have a very tough time ever getting back control of the House or the Senate. So they're going to vote no over and over and over again until the end of time, or they get rid of the filibuster, or somehow Democrats take enough votes in the Senate that they get 60 votes and and they can control the Senate and say, hey, we're going to do what we want to do. So this is all a political argument rather than a, a fundamental Democratic argument, is it not? Well, it's kind of both. I mean, it is indeed a political argument that Democrats would like more control, but The people who live in Washington, D.C., while they're not 100 percent Democrat, they certainly are overwhelmingly Democrat in the city. Uh, It's a majority black city in this in this country. Uh, And the Republicans don't want to give them any more control. And but if you live in that city, if you believe in the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, uh, you're hard pressed to have an argument against why the people who live in the nation's capital don't get a vote in Congress. Taking that issue of taxation without representation, knowing that this is a political fight, this is a political debate, you would think that the Democrats would have an easier time making a 51st state argument if they went with Puerto Rico instead of D.C. Certainly no historical argument about a federal district can be made there. It's not a federal district, but it also it leans, again, more Democratic, which is why Republicans will find any excuse they possibly can other than we don't want to lose power in saying they don't deserve to have a vote in Congress. They are in the same situation in in terms of uh, representation in Congress in Puerto Rico. Um, So it's um, it's it's very difficult for people who live here and certainly people who don't live here probably don't care much about it because they got their representatives in Congress and they have their say there. Uh, but unless the Democrats somehow manage to get rid of the filibuster or in the next couple of elections, find a way to get 60 Democrats in the Senate, this is just going to keep dying on the vine every time a democratically controlled house votes for this. So hypothetically, should this pass and DC become a state, what would it look like? Would there still be a federal district with the White House, the Capitol and all of that? I'm sure they would carve out an even tinier part of that. But the fact is that that part of Washington, D.C. is just a tiny sliver of the actual part of it. We, we People who live in Washington call it Disneyland, Washington. It's where the federal buildings are. It's where the Smithsonian is. Uh, that's basically the strip from all the way up to the U.S. Capitol down to the Lincoln Memorial and across uh, the river into the uh, into Arlington, Virginia, uh, where the Pentagon and the, well, the Pentagon doesn't actually uh, is is in Virginia. It's not in it's in, not in D.C. as well as Arlington National Cemetery. Now there are federal agencies uh, like the FDA that's in suburban Maryland. They were going to move the FBI out to suburban Maryland, but it's still downtown. So, you know, the argument is, well, this is all just federal government. There are major parts of the federal government that aren't inside Washington, D.C., in parts of the government where people have full representation in Congress. So that argument kind of falls flat a bit when you start to get into the semantics of all this. 
When you talk about representation, you're talking about people that live in a district or live in a state. So you're talking about residential areas, counting the people in, say, a commercial area or an industrial part of town doesn't really count. It's where people reside. So how does that factor in? Well, absolutely. Well, they don't actually live uh, on the grounds of the Capitol, but they live mighty close. I mean, literally across the street and one block away from the U.S. Capitol is a residential area where the transportation department is and, and health and human services. You go a block in any direction east of there and you start to get apartment buildings and homes where people live. Uh, the same thing with the White House. You can go a, a block or two from the White House uh, when you're heading toward Georgetown and you got apartment buildings and where p- places where people live. So, again, the federal government footprint is a small sliver of this city. Uh, but the residential working part of the city is far bigger. And they, again, don't have any say in the federal government. So if the Democrats know that this is going to go nowhere in the Senate, why even bring it up? Well, they bring it up because they have the power to do it. We've got a, they've got a Democratic president. They've got a Democratic-controlled uh, House. Uh, and the Senate is indeed in Democrat hands in terms of having a majority, a slim majority, by one vote, and that is the vice president of the United States. And there has been talk about, certainly in, in the House, a big push to get rid of the filibuster. If they do that, then... If this bill passes and somehow the senators get rid of the filibuster, then the bill does indeed have a chance of passing the Senate. All right, ABC's Andy Field from where else but Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. Of course, if you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and our hourly news updates. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.